All right, good morning. How is everybody? Good. We are going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 to 18. 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 to 18. Should be a Bible in the chair in front of you. And we are in this series called The Unexplainable Life. We're looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha and uh, walking through what all of that means uh, for our, our day and our lives. So before uh, we jump into that, though, I do want to give you some good news. We have uh, been searching for months and months and months for an executive director of operations for Bay Area Church and Christian School. Um, So what does that mean? Some of you are like, okay, great. Uh, Here's what that means. We had a director of operations who uh, told us a year ago, we're moving to the Hill Country, we're going to build a house and go there, and they did ride off into the sunset. He was a man of his word. Uh, Greg Plummer and Tracy, they did exactly that. And so we were searching uh, through the the time that they were here. Uh, We formed a search committee uh, that was chaired by Mike Pyburn. Uh, Members of that committee were uh, John Dixon, Kevin Bryant, Cherry Reichel, Christina Fuller, and Marshall Gilmore. They went through about 70, uh, 70 resumes, a questionnaire process, an interview process. To make a long story short, they made a recommendation uh, to our executive team, and that recommendation was that we, uh, we bring Matt Garner on as our executive director of operations. Matt and Christine are church members here in good standing, but they also, Matt has been the elementary principal for several years at Bay Area Christian School. So Matt will be moving into this role, which we're really excited about. Uh, this requires a church vote, which will actually happen on October 23, because it's one of the, the four uh, roles on our staff that sort of oversee the whole. And if you're still like completely confused, Bay Area Church has a huge ministry called Bay Area Christian School. Because of that, Monday to Friday, we have a thousand kids on our campus, plus faculty and staff, plus all of our church, and we have to work really hard to align everything. So the executive director of operations is the person behind the curtain, right? Making sure all of our systems, HR, IT, finance, operations, transportation, all that stuff is working so that we can do all that we do, which is actually a really huge uh, operation. I put that, that job description, if I were to write that job description, it would just be everything Pastor Brian never wanted to think about and wants someone else to think about. That's the job description. Someone needs to pay attention, uh, close attention to the business operations of the church and school. And that's that particular role. So Matt and Christine Garner, Matt Garner has been uh, recommended for that position so that you know. And I've done my job letting you know. You should have got an email this week with uh, a link, and that link has information about Matt and his family. All right? Now, stand with me. We're going to read 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 to 18. If you're our guest, we say this phrase at the end of the main text reading, the very words, just to uh, highlight that these are God's words that we're reading now. So uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. 
But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the name of the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And the Lord passed by, and the great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek, seek my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi. Uh, You shall anoint to be king over Israel and Elisha, the son of Shaphat. You shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You can be seated. Now that is a mouthful, right? If you missed last week or you're not familiar with this passage of scripture, I have to recap something for you. So last week in 1 Kings chapter 18, we learned that Elijah the prophet faced in what was an epic showdown, a battle with 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. What he did, he basically said to Jezebel and to Ahab, who were the powers that be in Israel at the time, who brought Baalism into Israel. Baalism is a fertility cult. It is, uh, Baal is a storm god. And so if, you, if you're an agrarian society and you want your crops to grow and you want economy, you have to have rain. And so they, would begin, they began praying to Baal instead of God, the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jezebel brought all of that. Elisha had had enough. And he said... Uh, let's go to Mount Carmel. We'll build an altar and you 400 prophets of Baal, you call on Baal. And if he rains down fire from heaven, then we'll say Baal is God. But if nothing happens, I'm going to call on Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if he rains down fire from heaven, 
then we'll say Yahweh is God. And that's exactly what happened. 400 prophets of Baal call out to, uh, to Baal, nothing happens. Yeah, uh, Elijah calls out to Yahweh and fire rains down. And the way the story goes, 400 prophets of Baal were killed by the sword and their bodies were strewn for miles. So not only was Elijah winning like this epic spiritual victory, but he was also as a prophet, a political reformer in Israel. And he came against Ahab and Jezebel, the king and prince, the Tyrian princess of, of Israel at the time. And came against their religion, against their politic, against their platform, all of that kind of stuff. And that's where we pick up today. And I want to talk to you about depression as it relates to the unexplainable life. Because we learn very quickly that the unexplainable life in Christ is not, not free from depression. Now we see here in uh, 1 Kings chapter 19 that Elijah's experiencing what I'm going to call a situational depression. So look at verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Here's the message she sends. Remember, she's a person in power. She has the capability to pull this off. So may the gods do to me and more also... If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So you killed my prophets. Now I'm going to kill you. She put a bounty on his head and she has the ability, the power, the capacity, the resources to pull that off. And what we find very quickly, it says, then verse three, then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. So here we find Elijah experiencing a situation that is causing him depression and it's rooted in fear and exhaustion. He's exhausted because of what he's been through already with the 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The scripture says here, he gives us geography, he ran for his life and came to Beersheba. Well, he runs from Jezreel to Beersheba, which is miles and miles and miles. We're not talking about a short distance. He, he, he traverses topography that is, goes from being the most lush valley maybe in the world to the most desolate of desert, deserts in maybe all of the world. So he's exhausted and he's fearful because this bounty has been put on his head. And you would think it would be different, right? You think if Elijah fights 400 prophets of Baal and wins, there would be this grand celebration, right? You would think um, if a man could, did something in the name of God like, I, like Elijah did, he said, I, I, it's not going to rain until I say it rains again. And it didn't for three and a half years until Elijah said, it's time for it to rain. If, if, if you have a prophet who calls fire down from heaven and it actually comes, you would think at this point in the narrative, this point in the story, you're really getting like a parade for Elijah, celebration. Elijah's, you know, on top of the world. If it was happening in our day, there would be TikToks for Elijah and memes for Elijah and we would all be excited about Elijah, wearing Elijah shirts and all, all kinds of stuff. But that's not, that's not reality. It's like a movie, right? That's not what happened. 
What happened is that we learned that even though he's living this unexplainable life that defeats 400 prophets of Baal, his unexplainable life is not free of depression. Sometimes fear and depression come in the wake of really good things, even magnificent victory. Sometimes winning the spiritual battle is often wrought with depression, difficulty, and suffering on the other side. Sometimes you living the unexplainable life will experience depression and suffering even if, even if you've been a part of really good things. Now I want to show you how God meets him there. In verse 3 it says he, he ran to Beersheba which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. So Beersheba is like the last settlement. When you read the borders of Israel, you read from Dan to Beersheba. That's north to south. Beersheba is like the last town before you just go into the wilderness. Beersheba itself is in the wilderness, but into the deep wilderness. So if Beersheba is wilderness you can survive in, he goes a day journey from there to get away, to isolate. He's in that, that desert you cannot uh, survive in on your own. He pretty much has a death wish going there by himself anyway. Verse 4, but he, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about a broom tree, uh, but what you're think the best example I can, I can give is like... Uh, a little bit of hill country scrub brush, right? So this is not some big like tree in the wilderness that is, 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 is magnificent and provides shelter and all this kind of stuff. This is, a, this is in the bottom of a wadi in the wilderness where there might have been water three months before from some little bit of, of rain. And this broom tree is magnificent at finding that water and living for a long period of time. But that broom tree might be, you know, this tall from the stage to here. And he's crawled up against this broom tree because it is the only shade he can find. It's the only shelter that he can find in that particular place. And so we find God meet him here in an unusual way. Um, it says, he, he sat down under a broom tree and he asked this question. He asked that he might die, saying, it's enough. Now, O oh Lord, take me, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you're like, it's enough. This is enough. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I can tell you in a room the size, a lot of you probably have been at some place in your life where you thought like, man, just take me home, God. This is, this is too much. This is, this is too much for me to handle. And that's where Elijah was. I mean, like literally depressed. And, and it says that, that he lay down in verse five and he slept under the, the broom tree. Now, this is where I'm praying. When I get to those points in my life, this is where I'm praying for extraction, right? Like send the Black Hawk helicopters, strike Jezebel with a lightning bolt, whatever you have to do, get me out of here. And I think a lot of times we pray that way, especially when we get to a difficult situation like Elijah's in. Currently, we pray for extraction, but God doesn't meet Elisha that way. 
Instead, here's, here's what we find. If you just follow verse 5, he, he slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, which is Sinai, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. So how does God meet Elijah in that depression as he's just crawled under a broom tree in the wilderness? Here's here's what he does. Here's what God does. It's magnificent. Number one, he provides the broom tree. You're like, where's the black hawk? He doesn't get a black hawk. No extraction. He provides the broom tree. There is enough shade under that broom tree in, in my observations in those, that part of the desert world, to, for one person to crawl under and find some relief from the sun, which is scorching in that place. So he provides the broom tree. He gives him an angel to minister to him. Now, if you're that deep in the wilderness, you're not going to pass somebody else. You're not going to see people. And so... It's going to take a miracle for you to have community in that place. And God knows he needs shade. David said, the Lord is, is the shade at my right hand. And he knows he needs community. It's not good for a person to isolate and be alone when they're that depressed. So he sends an angel to be with him. And the angel ministers to him. And this is what, this is what he gets. Bread and water. So uh, many times in my life, I've sat in a Bedouin, Bedouin tent out in the wilderness, out in the desert, in these particular deserts that the Bible talks about, and they will start a fire, and they will, make, uh, they will take flour and salt and water and make the simplest bread you've ever had on a fire. That's what this is. And he provides a jar of water. A jar of water is gold in the wilderness because there is no water out there. And so he gives him what he needs. He gives him bread. It's like, it's like God is being a Bedouin and, ex, and showing him hospitality right in the middle of this desert. So he gives him community. He gives him shade. He gives him what he needs for physical, uh, phys, physical sustenance. He gives him sleep. I mean, think about this. Like, uh, we need sleep. Some of you sleep like four hours a night right? Some of you sleep four hours a night and it's not even good sleep. It's like an hour here, 30 minutes there. It all adds up to four hours. It's not enough. If you think about the theology of rest in scripture, we see, we see rest given one day of the week, a whole day of the Sabbath where we stop working, we rest. You know, that's, that's the pattern. God knows we need that. When we don't rest effectively, just that causes depression, can cause depression, right? So he's just meeting all these very practical needs. He gives him shade. He gives him an angel to minister to him, bread and water for physical, emotional sustenance, sleep for physical, emotional sustenance. He, He wakes him up and gives him more bread and water. You need to eat more because he knows the journey ahead. And, and, and that's what he gets. Provision, provision. Now, would you think there would be some other payoff for, for, for defe- defeating 400 prophets of Baal? Like some big bonus check or, you know, he gets a broom tree 
an angel, water and bread, and then water and bread again and some time to sleep. Now here's the thing. We have this idea of what to pray for when we're in these moments in our life where we think, you know, God should get me out of here. And you know what God always says? There's hardly ever, hardly ever an extraction scenario. You know what he always does? He always, he always becomes present. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. You're gonna go through, but I will be with you. And that's what we see right here in, in the midst of Elijah's depression as God is with him. There's no rescue, no removal, only provision and presence. I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. The day, the night before he's crucified, he says to his father, same God, Elijah, cries out to you, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Because he's sweating drops, drops of blood, according to the scripture. That's angst. That's anxiety. He knows what's coming. And, and the Lord doesn't extract him from that situation. He goes through the, the trial, the flogging, the beating, the death. But the Lord is with him. We go through often. We go through, but the Lord is with us. And this is how the Lord meets him. Sometimes fear and depression comes in the wake of really good things, even magnificent victory. Sometimes we feel depressed in the midst of that, and the Lord meets us there. Not often to remove us from the situation, but to walk us through it. I will be with you. Now, in those moments, sometimes, and I think if you're honest, you would say this, sometimes it's hard to hear from God. It's hard to hear from Him when you're that, you feel that depressed. You're feeling the things that you're feeling so much to the point that you're like, kill me now. Let it be over, right? And so the second thing we get in this passage of Scripture is an understanding that the unexplainable life sometimes struggles with hearing God and has to lean in to the whisper of God. Because just like we want a Black Hawk extraction in a bad situation, we want God to speak in really loud and profound ways so that we can see it and hear it. And verses 9 to 18 show us Exactly that. So Elijah comes to uh, Mount Sinai. Verse 8, it says that he arose and went to, to Mount Horeb, the mount, mountain of God. And he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he gets this question. This question is going to be asked twice in the next eight verses. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, there's all kinds of sarcastic answers to that question, right? If you're Elijah, you remember the 400 prophets of Baal thing? I was under a broom tree. You sent your angel. Now I'm here. What in the world? What are you doing here? You know, He's got to be feeling all that kind of stuff, you know? And we do feel those kinds of things when it comes to our relationship with God and we're going through difficult Things, But it's a good question. What are you doing here, uh, Elijah? So Elijah assesses the situation for him. I mean, you see it very clearly. Here's Elijah's uh, assessment of the situation. 
Verse 10, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. That's you. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So here I am, hiding. That's why I'm here. This is his assessment. How does God respond to that? Again, you would expect a million different things, maybe. But God's response is, okay, come a little closer. Come a little closer. So you got to think about that journey he's taken from wherever he was in the wilderness to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. I've climbed what we think is Mount Sinai one time in my life. It takes from before the sun comes up in the morning to when the sun is going down at night and you don't come back that day. You sleep up there and come back the next day because it's such a long uh, trek. That's where Moses received the law. Uh, it's, it's a profound place in the Old Testament narrative. And so Elijah is there in a profound moment. He's made this crazy trek all the way, from, all the way out to, to Mount Horeb to be asked the question, what are you doing here? And he tells him, I've been zealous for you, jealous for you. I've been doing your work. Nobody else is doing your work, just me. Now they're trying to kill me. What are you going to do about it is implied. And God's response is, uh, come here, come, up, come a, little, a little closer. And so verse 11, it says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by. And it says a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. So Elijah would know that Moses has already been up there on that mountain and the Lord has passed by before. He knows that story. And he would expect something magnificent. And so we get this magnificent earthquake. First, this magnificent wind. And that would make sense, right? Because ruah is the word for wind. It's also the word used for God's spirit in the Old Testament. And so you would think he, he would be in the wind, but he wasn't in the wind. And so then you get this earthquake, and you, okay, if, if, the, if the one sovereign king of the universe, almighty God, is going to pass by, you would expect an earthquake, but he wasn't in the earthquake. And then you get a fire. And Elijah's acquainted with fire. He's called fire down from heaven that God sent to defeat 400 prophets of Baal. He would expect God to be in the fire, but he wasn't in the fire. And it gives us this little phrase that says, and after the earthquake, the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, here's the phrase, the sound of a low whisper. Now that is, in Hebrew, kol damamadaka. It, it literally translates the sound of thin silence. The th sound of thin silence. So if you're going to hear a whisper like that, what do you have to do? You really have to lean in to hear a whisper like that, not, not so much with an earthquake or fire or wind that breaks all the rocks around you, but to hear this kind of voice that comes from God, you really have to lean in. The unexplainable life sometimes struggles to hear from God and has to consistently lean in. So how, how do you lean in? You're not up on Mount Sinai. What do you do? You lean in by consistently reading the word of God. And you hear from him. 
and you obey him and you do that day in and day out. And this is how God speaks to us in the voice of thin silence. I don't know how many times I've sat down with the word of God in my life and I did not hear an audible voice, but I knew what God was telling me to do after I read his scriptures. I knew what he was telling, how he was telling me how to live, what he was wanting me to be today, who I needed to go to, because he, he does speak in this, this voice that is like the sound of thin silence. It's a low whisper and we lean in. And so sometimes you're lean, living the unexplainable life. You have to realize you're not waiting for an earth shattering, sky splitting, rock cracking moment or fire from heaven. You're leaning in to hear the low whisper of God's voice. This is how God responds. Come and meet with me. And he asked the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? After the earthquake, after the fire, after the same question. And Elijah responds exactly the same way. Well, I'm here Because of the 400 prophets of Baal, I've been zealous for you. No one's left. They've killed all the other prophets. Now they're trying to kill me. And so I'm here. I hid under a broom tree. Now I'm up on the mountain and we're talking. How does God respond to that? You you have to remember, and, and we have to think about ourselves the same way. God does not need Elijah. Elijah is like a pixel. Just one tiny little pixel. But God loves Elijah. He cares about Elijah. He doesn't need him, but he loves him. And he cares about him. And here's how he responds. God responds by lending Elijah perfect clarity. Do you know when people are going through like a situational depression like this, a lot of times they... They lose sight of direction and purpose and who God is. And so they they lose hope. And it just becomes this like snowball of depression. But God lends exactly what he needs. He gives them direction and purpose. So if if you continue to look at this passage of scripture, it says, verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shaphat, to, to, to be the prophet in your place. So let, let me just tell you all the good news laced in that. First of all, he's going to go to Damascus, he's going to anoint this guy named Haziel. And this guy is going to kill a lot of these Baal people. So he, he's going to get, he, he's seeing the beginning of justice. Then he's going to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. But there's already a king of Israel named Ahab. So if he's going to anoint Jehu, what does that mean is going to happen to Ahab? There's going to be no more. And so justice. He is hearing justice. Then he says, you're going to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, to take your place. Which means for him, as the prophet, you have more to do. But the burden of what you're carrying is about to be over. He sees justice and relief in his future. And that, in that, God is giving him direction and purpose. Do you know one of the things that we do with people that are struggling with depression 
is that oftentimes they don't know what to do next. And we will have to literally give a plan that says, here's what you do in the morning, wake up, take a shower, brush your teeth from 7 to 7.30. And we'll just, we'll just walk through the day. And it's like, just follow. Because they might, they might be so depressed, they just need direction for like, what do I do next? What do I do next? I don't feel like doing anything. And this is what God gives him. He gives him clear direction. And in the direction, there is hope in anointing Jehu, king, king of Israel, and anointing Haziel, anointing Elijah. There's hope in all of it. And there is relief and justice in all of it. God is saying to him, you're going to have to keep going. But relief is coming. The other thing he does for him is lends him clarity. I know the times that in my life where I have felt the most depressed, I often will say something in my head and maybe sometimes out loud, like nobody understands. Like nobody's ever been through this before. Nobody understands this particular thing. It's pretty common among people that are going through something or a season of depression. It's like you, you internalize, you isolate, and you think nobody gets this. You know, and this, this is where Elijah's been. We've heard him say it twice now, like, and I, only I am left. And the Lord just provides clarity. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. It's not I, only I am left. There are at least 7,000 other ones who have not kissed the mouth of Baal. It's easy to think we're the only one. We're the only one that's going through something. The only one zealous for our faith. And now look what, where it got. It's those kinds of things. Sometimes our view of the situation is super individualized and pixelated, but here God just reveals his view. You're not the only one. And that's clarity. God's response to Elijah's depression in this moment is to say, come a little closer now, let me ask you an important question. What are you doing here? And let me tell you some facts. This is what you're going to do next. And there's the hope in it. And also, you're not alone. And all that brings, brings hope to him. Well, all this begs a question. It's the same question God asked Elijah, and it's the question I want to ask you today. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And by here, I don't mean like sitting on row four of Bay Area Church. I mean like, what are you doing here in this place that God has put you in as a follower of Jesus? What are you, what are you doing here? You know, when you look at, you start studying all the, the people in the Bible that we think about these epic heroes, a lot of times they went through great suffering and had times of depression. I, I, because we were in Turkey the last couple of weeks, I was studying a lot about the Apostle Paul, and then I led this group in the footsteps of Paul, and you just can't help but think of him as a human more than just a guy mentioned in the uh, pages of Scripture. And it caused me to read Second Timothy a lot, because Second Timothy is Paul's last words, basically. It's, a, it's, a, it's the second letter he writes to Timothy, who is the pastor of Ephesus, um, at Ephesus, and Paul raised him up as a son and left him there as the 
the pastor. And it's his last words because after this he would be executed uh, for his, his uh, faith in Christ alone. He was, at the time of this writing, he, he was awaiting execution and he knew it. He's facing death. He's at the end of his ministry that he's poured his whole life into. He lists in 2 Timothy the friends who abandoned him. And telling Timothy, like, watch out for these ones too because they will bite you, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. I mean, so he's been abandoned. He's, he's laid it all out in the life. You study Paul, like, traveled all over the place, preached the gospel, been run out of town, shipwrecked. Now he's in prison all for the sake of Christ. And he has to wonder, he has to have moments of depression and he has to um, feel like that somehow God may be far off from time to time. And he writes this in prison. He, he, he starts this letter with the answer to the question for himself. What are you doing here? And this is something we would pass by unless we really understood Paul's situation at the time. Here's how he pens the letter, sitting in a prison cell, awaiting his own execution. Verse 1 of chapter 1 in 2 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. What are you doing here, Paul? Uh, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Like God willed it. God willed me to be in this prison right now. By the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to go and tell Timothy, based on, I know who I am. But it's kind of like, make sure you know who you are. So he says three things that I think are really important to us as we think about these seasons of depression. He says to Timothy, like, hey, remember who you are. And he gets pretty personal. He says, like, remember the faith that your grandmother and your mother put inside of you. And you've been acquainted with the scriptures your whole life. Remember those very words of God. Because it's not going to be easy, this whole thing in Ephesus is not going to be easy. You're going to face persecution for sure. So, so, and you'll be depressed from time to time. You'll be like Elijah under that broom tree, just wanting it to end. Remember who you are. Two, remember who Christ is. Sometimes I think we, we mention Jesus a lot, but we forget we forget he's the one that shed his blood for our sins. That, it, that in human form, he walked the planet and did not sin. That he literally died a horrific death and was buried in a borrowed tomb because he didn't have enough money. His family didn't have enough money for him to have his own place. But... He told us he would die that way before he died that way. And he told us before he died that he would rise again. And then he actually did it. So don't forget about that part. That's why we say we baptize people that, that do you believe in the resurrection of the dead. 
the resurrection of Christ because it is the hope of Christ, the hope of the resurrection of Christ that trumps every broom tree moment. It's the thing that allows us to get through. And so Paul's saying to Timothy, like, look, remember who you are and remember who Christ is. He's the one that they bloodied and nailed to a cross who in power got up restored on the third day like he said he would. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And just like Elijah heard justice when he heard, you know, go anoint Jehu and Haziel and Elisha. Because if Haziel doesn't kill him, Jehu will kill him. If Jehu doesn't kill him, Elisha will kill him. Read the text. Just like Elijah heard justice in that, hear justice in the fact that Jesus is coming back again. So he says, you know, remember who you are. What are you doing here? Who are you? Remember who Christ is. And then you know what the exhortation is for all of Timothy? This letter, 2 Timothy. Timothy, be bold. Be bold. Remember who you are. Remember who Christ is. And because of those two things, be bold for the gospel. If you're Timothy receiving this, you might be tempted to go, well, look where it landed you, Paul. Or you might be motivated so much by that man who followed Christ to his death that you would pray to God, give me boldness like that. I know who I am. I know who Christ has given me boldness like that for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't exempt you from the broom tree moments. It doesn't exempt you from the suffering. But it's that God who made you who you are that will be with you in the suffering. Last picture and then we'll close. When Elijah was under that broom tree, he was given a cake of bread. Scripture says that Jesus is the bread of life born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. It says that he gave Elisha a jar of water. Scripture says that Jesus is the living water. My point to you today is that you will, living the unexplainable life, you will go through depressive times. You will be fearful and exhausted from time to time, but just know this, that Jesus is the bread of life. He's our living water. And he will be with us through those times. So be bold like Elijah. It's worth the broom tree moments. Because God doesn't abandon you there. He's with you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And just ask the Lord to speak to you. Father, I um, have myself experienced the things that bring for broom tree moments. And, and I know that my tendency and my weakness is just um, isolation. 
it's a tendency toward depression. Lord, we are human and we go through things and we have tendencies just like Elijah did. But Father, would you strengthen us? For my friends and my family, my brothers and sisters that are listening to this preaching and they're right under the broom tree right now saying, kill me now. Lord, would you meet them right where they are just like you met Elijah? Elijah, bring the cake of bread and the jar of water. Bring the angelic messenger or other people to provide community. Give them shade. And give them clarity and direction just enough to to make it the next leg of the journey. Give them hope, strength, joy that comes from you. Help us to see, Father, that you're working a greater plan than we can ever imagine and that you're faithful and trustworthy. Father, for people here that maybe have lost sight of who they are, help them to remember who they are in you. That they're loved, that they were created uniquely formed in their mother's womb for your glory and for good for the good of people in the world that you gave them good works before they even took a step you have purpose and clarity a clarity of purpose for them help them to remember who they are and help them to hold on to you Jesus on the mountaintop and in the victory and under the broom tree in the wilderness and the suffering. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.